Hey there, it's Yasmin here. This week on Mainly Moonology, I'm actually revisiting one of my favorite interviews I've ever done with an amazing astrologer called Demetra George. I have re-listened to this episode countless times because there is so much information in here, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Mainly Moonology podcast. I'm your host, Yasmin Boland, an award-winning astrologer and the Sunday Times best-selling author of books including Moonology and creator of the Moonology Oracle Cards. My intention for this podcast is to help you understand how you can create your dream life using Mainly Moonology, the moon, as your guide. For those of you who have been uh, with me for some time, you know that for a very, very long time I've been wanting to speak to one particular author called Demetra George. And guess what? Demetra is actually on the line today. So uh, it's a pretty special day for me to have her here. Um, I just want to give you an idea about Demetra. Um, those of you um, who listen to me on a regular basis, you know that about 12 months ago, I somehow came upon a book of Demetra's called The Mysteries of the Dark Moon. And I know it was a year ago because I actually read this book for the first time in France and I was at Lake Geneva and uh, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And uh, it's really about the moon and the dark goddess. And um, I haven't stopped reading it since then. I, I literally just read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. I have read other books. I am reading other books as well. Um, but, yeah, so this is the book I've been talking about for a year. And uh, finally I managed to convince Demetra to come on the show, which is absolutely brilliant. About took me about six or seven emails, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but let me just tell you a bit about Demetra in case you don't know her. So Demetra George is a professional astrologer who received her master's degree in classics from the University of Oregon, which is where she is right now. She's been active in astrology since 1971, and in 2002 Demetra received the renowned regular Award uh, in theory and understanding, specialising in archetypal mythology and ancient techniques. Demetra is the author of many books, including Asteroid Goddesses, Astrology for Yourself, Mysteries of the Dark Moon, Finding Our Way Through the Dark, Astrology and the Authentic Self, and Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice. Demetra lectures internationally and since 1992 has facilitated educational pilgrimages to the sacred sites of Greece, Egypt and India, which I would love to do one of those trips with you one day. Um, she is currently translating a corpus of hermetic medical astrology texts from ancient Greek, which would uh, lead us to believe that Demetra has learned ancient Greek. Uh, Demetra teaches around the world and online with a focus on the fundamentals of interpretation, chart delineation, Hellenistic astrology and mythic asteroids. She's taught history of astrology at Kepler College and the University of Oregon and lives in Eugene, Oregon. 
Demetra draws upon her background in mythology and ancient languages to create a unique synthesis of archetypal astrology and ancient techniques along with travel to sacred sites. Through her online classes and annual retreat, Demetra teaches fundamentals of interpretation, chart delineation, Hellenistic astrology and mythic asteroids. And if you go to her website, demetra-george.com, you can find her calendar of upcoming live and in-person events. And, and may I ask you, who's your uh, protectress? There, there, are, there are many, but I would probably have to say that my name, Demetra, was a name that was my grandmother's name. And there is an asteroid Demeter as well as Ceres, and that that asteroid is strong in my chart. And in fact, my paternal grandmother came from an area of Greece, um, and that town had an ancient cult site for the worship of Demeter. And so I think, obviously, I would have to... Um, land there yeah yeah um actually before we go further as well just i'd like to ask you a little something for, for people listening who know their chart a little bit um let's talk about the third house as as the home of the goddess just briefly because that's something i heard you talking about with chris brennan which i've never heard that before can you just explain so if you're listening Everybody, you, you, hopefully you know you have 12 houses in your chart and the third house is actually associated with the goddess. Is that, is that right, Demetra? I didn't know that. Well, well, yes, its name in the ancient astrological text was goddess. Um, each wow. of the houses were given a name. The third house was goddess. And the ninth house, which is opposite the third, was called the house of God. And then there are planets that were said to rejoice in certain houses and the moon is the planet that rejoices in the third house of the goddess and in terms of polarity then the sun was the god rejoicing in the ninth house of god so and then there are other names such as good fortune and the good diamond and the gates of hades and there some of them were very evocative names that dropped out of our modern um, transmission of astrology because it's only been since the mid-1990s that we have had access to the ancient Greek and Latin astrological texts, and we've started a, a translation process of bringing them into English translation, and that's how come we suddenly know this now. Right, because I, I mean, I'm not saying I know everything because I really don't, but I feel like it's weird I didn't know that the third house was the house of the goddess because especially right, because, because my son is not something house. that was transmitted. Either, another one of these patriarchal things. Right, and I don't think it was so much that there was a deliberate omission, but when the... um with the fall of the Roman Empire and the advent of Christianity, all of the astrological texts were, no one could read them anymore because no one could read Greek and beside it was illegal. And so they dropped to the bottom of libraries and monasteries and the stacks. And it was in the 
early 1900s, the group of European scholars went rummaging and found these astrological texts and made critical editions. And then a small group of astrologers began translating them. And lo and behold, there it was in the text that the third house was the house of the goddess. It dealt with dreams and with divinations, with women's sacred rites and rituals. And it wasn't um, suppressed. It was just lost and then recovered. Yeah, or maybe just forgotten due to lack of interest. Well, perhaps, but they didn't have access to it is what I'm saying. It wasn't until the 1900s that we knew what was in these texts that had been written in the first six centuries. Right. But then, I mean, I'm not trying to pick an argument, but at the same (laughs) time, the whole, you know, godly thing of the ninth house made it through the generations. Well, I had never heard the ninth house being called God. I had heard it. Well, it's not God, to but it's sort of, you know, the quest for higher consciousness and a higher you know, consciousness. And, but also in the text, it was the house of astrologers, of dream interpreters, of prophets, of augurs, of all kinds of divination. Um, and that there is an intimate connection between the third and ninth house because each house reflects yeah. some of the qualities of its opposite house. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the deities, the sun and moon, they were Helios and Selene, or in uh, later mythology, Olympian Artemis and Apollo. And this mm-hmm. is where the notion of siblings comes from the third house. It was the divine siblings were holding um, that particular line. Mm. Okay, well, fair enough. I mean, I just think when I think of the ninth house, I do think of of higher ideals and learning and life philosophy, which does kind of lead you to God in a way and religion and, and all that. I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just a bit too. Um, yeah, it, it leads you to the fact that there's a <clears throat> source of knowledge that comes from on high from a spiritual dimension. And yeah. that's what flows yeah, into exactly. both the third and ninth house. And mm. I mean, and the diviners who are the interpreters between the messages of the divine and uh, and mortals are the links between the spiritual and temporal worlds, and those links exist in both the third and ninth house. Yeah. Yeah, whereas the third house, you never get told anything remotely spiritual. It's all well, just travel. Well, that is true. But um, for those of you who are listening, you'll uh, if you start looking at your charts and you have many planets in the third house and you're still wondering what is it about, like, communication or short travel that I'm supposed to be doing, and then you understand it's the house of the goddess, of um, women's rights and rituals, of feminism. Um, of women's spirituality, then all of a sudden the third house like blooms like a luscious garden. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think, Demetra, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you so much is because on some level I feel like I've always sort of known about all these things of what's happened to women, but your your book, The Mysteries of the Dark Moon, really gave me like, for one thing, it 
backed up everything I kind of sort of suspected deep down. And it just put a structure to it. And it almost in a funny way, you know, gave me a place to put my outrage uh, at, at the whole situation. And, um, yeah, I mean, you wrote this book 30 years ago. Do you think it's getting, a, is it having a resurgence now? It is definitely having a resurgence now. There have been um, two new translations, one in Portuguese and one in Dutch that came out in June. And then an audio book was just created. Uh, and Tony Howard, who's my sort of agent and uh, angel in the whole technological world, um, encouraged me to do a course on Mysteries of the Dark Moon. So, And in terms of the lunation cycle and the progressed lunation cycle, I, 30 years later, I'm at the exact same place as I was wow. when I was first writing this book. So as you go through the moon cycles and repeat the round again, but on a different level, some of the themes from 30 years prior come filtering up and one is reworking those motifs in a different kind of way. So that coincidence didn't, synchronicity hasn't escaped me. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. 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 So, um, so, so many questions I'd like to ask you. I suppose let's start by talking about uh, what drew you to working with goddess energy because you've obviously done that with your asteroid goddesses book, your mysteries of the dark moon book. What, what, I mean, was it just ingrained in you growing up in, did you grow up in Oregon? No, I grew up uh, in New York on Long Island and the first years of my life I spent in Chicago. Um, and my primary caretakers were both of my grandmothers uh, who were oh, Greek. Oh, wow. And among the um, bedtime stories, I was told, were the myths of the Greek gods and goddesses. Hmm. And, oh, gosh. you know, so that was like part that was there with, you know, Cinderella and Snow White and all of those other, you know, um, early children's stories we hear. When I was um, in my early 20s and had just started my study of astrology and went to my first astrology conference, I started talking to someone in the lobby who turned out to be Eleanor Bach, who had just published the first ephemerides of the four main asteroid goddesses. And upon ah. finding out my name was Demetra, and she looked it up in her book and saw it was, like, connected with my son, and she said, I think you should have a copy of my book. And then oh, she gave wow. it to me. Yeah, and I went back to where I was living in a very rural um, alternative community in the mountains of southern Oregon and began to put the four asteroids in the chart. But no one had written any interpretive material because just within the past month, we had finally gotten their positions. So I started to tell the stories that somewhere in my psyche, I remembered from my grandmothers. And as I would tell my friends the stories of these goddesses when they were prominent in their chart, 
they responded, oh, my goodness, you've just told me the story of my life. And so I began to see that these are the basic archetypal stories, the dramas that we've been given through to live our lives and gain in consciousness and understanding, that they're universal. And when uh, a body, whether it's an asteroid or a star or a planet, um, or is prominent in the skies when we're born, then the attributes and the story of that God, God or goddess become archetypal themes that shape our life experiences. And then people can see their story as being part of a universal story. And it was profound moments of insight. And that came simply through the telling of the story evoked the recognition of many seemingly unrelated incidents in a person's life falling into a larger pattern. So then now there are 20,000 asteroids that there are many, many of them. They are named after mythological deities from all of the different traditions, not only Greco-Roman, but ancient Near Eastern and African and Celtic and Norse and Egyptian and Indian. And there's a rich um, uh, area of uh, archetypes to draw upon. And not every asteroid is important, but one, when one is, based upon its placement in a PowerPoint in your chart, then that story is like your story. Yeah, amazing. Oh, so, so that's what got me into the myth. <laughs> so. Right. Right. So, you know, there might be a question, well, how did I get from the mists of the goddesses to the dark moon, particularly the dark goddess? I mean, uh, yes, and, and also, you know, I mean, one thing that I wondered is, okay, so you, you've done the dark moon, but is she going to do the, the new moon and the crescent moon and the quarter moon and, you know, all that as well, because I'd love you to do those. But, yeah, so how? what drew you to the dark goddess? Let's talk about that. So... In the mandala of the asteroid goddesses, the moon was the ground uh, containing all of the potentials and possibilities of the feminine expression. And many of the goddesses are different facets of the one goddess, just like all of the phases are different facets of the moon's cycle. Um, And I talked about the four major goddesses, and I thought... But I still haven't really dealt with the foundation, which is the moon. And for over 20 years then, I lived on the Oregon coast. I walked the beach every day. I saw the tides come in and out, the cycles of the moon. When I started writing that book, um, I had an ocean view and the moonlight would come flooding into my bedroom. So I joked about taking moon baths every night while I slept. And I, and it was a time when women's spirituality was so strong in our consciousness. Um, Merlin Stone had written When God Was a Woman, and Maria Gambutis had put out all of her archaeological work about um, the feminine symbolism in Neolithic societies. You had Rianne Eisler with the chalice and the blade. And so there was all of this consciousness of a time when there were a matriarchy and goddesses and then 
something happened and they're all suppressed um, and denounced. And as I kept walking on the beach and looking at the cycle of the moon, I noticed that part of every cycle during the dark moon, the moon's light disappeared. And when the moon's light disappeared, this was like, are saying, time out, you know, I just have to go chill, so to speak. And there was this withdrawal that has to do with healing and regeneration that precedes a new round of activity. And I wondered to myself, well, maybe the goddess wasn't necessarily destroyed and suppressed and denounced. Maybe she simply withdrew into the dark phase of her own cycle which is a natural phase in any cyclical process, and that now she's beginning to reemerge. And so I let myself be carried away by that idea. And then from there, you get to the triple goddess of the new full and dark phases, the maiden, mother, and crone, and the dark goddess is connected to the dark phase of the woman's, um, the dark phase of the moon cycle and deals with that transition between cycles. And because she's hidden, it's the wisdom of the elder that holds knowledge of all of the mysteries. And so from that point, the book started to unfold. And I was having a Pluto transit to my IC and Mercury for about four years at that time. Wow. Gosh. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I wonder if we talk about, you know, I mean, that actually, because one thing I often think with um, with the whole goddess thing, I mean, it's really one of the biggest things in my whole life, especially, and I've just been reading, I told you I was reading that book um, uh, before we started The Power of the Witch, and she goes into all the, the information that Maria Gambush has brought out about the Neolithic times and so on, which mm-hmm. um, you know, I found really fascinating. And I've often thought, you know, um, you know, like we can say, oh, well, Pluto's in Capricorn, therefore, you know, the fat is being trimmed from businesses around the world or whatever. And I've thought, how do we, how do we explain the God, the reemergence of the divine feminine in the context of the moon? But you've just explained because maybe it's, I don't know, is it the 26,000 year cycle? Or, you know, if we're, we're coming out of the dark phase, we're in maybe in the new moon phase somehow, but how on earth yeah. do we measure it? Like against what? Right. And I did, a, a, I tried doing a little sketch in that book of, you know, and again, my thinking was that thinking of circa 1989. And there's been all kinds of research done since then um, that I, of course, didn't have access to. But my thinking was that it seemed that the disappearance of the goddess could be traced to about 3000 BC. And now okay. in 2000 CE, she was reemerging in the discovery of the four asteroid goddesses in 1801, like uh, they've they've reappeared, you know, and planets are cited, named, and discovered. They activate the corresponding center of consciousness in the human psyche, and that part begins to develop in its um, potentiality. Hey there, what are you wishing for? Alien here again, Yasmin's podcast producer. One of Yasmin's wishes 
is to get your vote. This year, she has been nominated for the Astrologer Expert Award at the Soul Awards 2022. If you like what Yasmin does, it would mean a lot to us if you could take a minute to go to soulandspiritmagazine.com awards and click on to vote for a category. We'll add the link to the show notes for easier access. The website is soulandspiritmagazine.com awards. We're really grateful for your support and your vote will help get Yasmin to the finals. Thanks again. So, Dimitri, you were saying that the disappearance of, uh, what did you say, the goddess or matriarchal societies was about? What what was being called at that time, the disappearance and suppression of the goddess. Okay, I'm writing it down. And that was about 3000 BC. from what people were writing in their research at that time, that was an approximate date that was being suggested. And so I simply took that interval to the current era of being 5,000 years and then thinking that that may have been the dark phase of the goddess cycle. And then I multiplied that by eight to get 40,000 years. And I went back to that time period. And that was the beginning of the upper Paleolithic period where there was the emergence of, right, of Homo as a species. And some of the earliest um, images of stones that were carved with the deltas of a woman's yoni and with uh, breasts of women, and it suggested that there was a veneration of the reproductive organs of women as being the source of life. Um, And so we might suppose that that was, at that time, a new moon phase of the emergence of the feminine energy. And then I sort of track that through... um, historical periods to get to if there was a disappearance happening at the time that people were suggesting it. And that one of the things that I framed was that it may have not been simply a a conquering and a suppression, but simply the withdrawal of the goddess into her hidden phase, because that's where she does her mysteries of renewal and is a normal and natural part of every cycle. So yeah. that was one of the yeah. ideas that I proposed in that book. Yeah. So but then you see that, you know, see hints of it in the mythology. And myths are one way to look at myths is this oral history and that they contain elements of um, the collective mind through time. And so you had. Um, goddesses like Medusa, who is a serpent-haired queen of wisdom. And then at a certain point, Perseus, the solar hero, comes and decapitates her and cuts off women from the source of articulating their wisdom and intelligence. Or you have um, uh, other gods, Hercules, killing the serpent that encircled the tree of immortality in the garden of the Hesperides. 
and the serpent was a symbol of both wisdom and regeneration that was the double of the goddess. And so in those mythological stories, you can see the um, memory, the ancient memory of a feminine archetype that was wise, intelligent, powerful, healing, being killed and destroyed by these new young heroes who were um, coming into their prominence. And so it's both, part of it is speculative, but by looking at the stories and the artifacts, then we are able to put together um, some possible suppositions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that really, one of the many things that really fascinated me reading your book as well was about how, so, you know, women were always about healing and regeneration and, and, and you know, the sexual rights that women were to perform and then, you know, sex was made dirty and, and we were kind of stripped of our powers. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that at all, especially the sexual aspect? Because I find that quite fascinating that women that, you know, that in ancient times sex was used as some kind of magical healing regenerative thing and and also I got a little bit confused by the idea of these men coming home from war and then would have sex yeah. as a way of healing because yeah. were they were the men going to war at that point I thought war really started more with the the whole patriarchal takeover or am I wrong there we don't we really don't know um, right my guess is that the um impulse for acquiring, expanding territory for additional resources to feed one's own people is something that's inbred into the human nature, human species. So, right. um, that, but that's another conversation. Yeah. Um, and, but maybe with the gradual thing as well. What? But going and, back and, to and, your question. Undoubtedly, it was a gradual thing anyway. Yeah. Going back to your question, um, priestesses um, under Ishtar, who is a Babylonian ancient Near Eastern goddess, who are said to have ritual intercourse with men coming home from battle to purify them of the horror of their blood crimes before they re-entered society. And when I read that and you know, the generation of, my generation of men were, so many had gone to Vietnam and had come back so psychologically damaged. And I thought if there was some sort of collective ritual to help them make that transition, how different it would have been um, for my generation. But recently, in preparation for this Mysteries of the Dark Moon course that I'm offering, I went back to the um, material on Lilith and Inanna, where Inanna was called a handmaiden of Lilith. Um, Lilith was called a handmaiden of Inanna. And part of Inanna, the great goddess of Sumeria, identified with the planet Venus, the goddess of both love and war as morning and evening star. Um, Each year her priestesses would have a sacred marriage ceremony um, where there was union with the high priestess of Inanna and the king um, as a public celebration. 
um, as an act of sympathetic magic to bring fertility to the land so that there would be a good crop. And that her priestesses likewise would engage in ritual sexuality with individuals in order to bring the blessings of healing and fertility into the ordinary human population. So it was, okay, where does this exist? Where does this come from? This was something that um, women, um, spirituality writers were writing, you know, and passing on, including myself. What were the sources for that? And it took me, now that we have the internet, we didn't have the internet in 1989. So it was much more challenging to get information. Um, However, uh, Stuart Lang, uh, Stephen Langdon, who was a, a Brit and a, a professor of Assyriology, was one of the first people to decipher the cuneiform um, texts that were Babylonian and Akkadian and Sumerian texts inscribed on clay tablets. And he had the hymns of Inanna, the Babylonian liturgies. And in a monograph that he wrote in 1913, he was talking about Lilith and as being part of the um, hands of Inanna, and that these were um, sexual priestesses, and they were holy, and they were sacred, and they were attached to Inanna's temples. But he also was a product of the Victorian age in 1913. And so right next to his translations of holy and sacred and temple, he was, you know, saying harlots and whores and prostitutes and immoral women. And I saw it fascinating that he had such a dissonance, cognitive dissonance, between looking at what the words themselves said and he could only filter it through his own morality of the times. And so there you have um, a lot of the confusion in the early um, the excavation through text of what was going on between what the texts themselves said and the interpreter can only interpret them through their own filter. Yeah, true. And it should have been a woman doing it anyway, probably. Pardon me? It would have been nice if it had been a woman, but who knows? The women were probably just as influenced by their own culture as the men. I mean, when I was studying Latin, we were translating Virgil, and Aeneas goes to the um, Sibyl at uh, Huma, and the word that describes the Sibyl in Latin is horrendi. And you look it up in the dictionary, and you could translate it as monstrous, horrendous, awesome, or most holy. So the translator has the choice which of these words that this this Latin word can mean, what are you going to use in your translation? Mm. So So how do you feel, sorry, how do you feel about Medusa? How do I feel about Medusa in what particular way? I guess as as a woman, as an astrologer, uh, you know, Algol, the most fearsome star in the sky, has Perseus chopping off Medusa's head. 
Like, mm-hmm. what do you think? I mean, Bernadette Brady says Algol is uh, a, the power of the divine feminine and not to be feared because of being so powerful. How do you feel about all that? Well, Medusa, okay, can you give me like a, a couple of minutes to develop it? Of um, course. Right. Serpents were very connected with the feminine, with the goddess. The goddesses were, and priestesses were depicted with, you know, crowns of serpents, serpents around their waists and their wrists. Um, and the serpent was a symbol of wisdom. It was the guardian of oracles. It was a symbol of yeah. regeneration because the serpent dies and sheds off its skin and then regenerates. So it was a very powerful symbol. And when the serpent is depicted on the head, this can be a code for the awakening of the Kundalini serpent coiled at the base of the spine, coming up through the central spinal canal and emerging out of the crown chakra as enlightened awareness. Serpents on the head, enlightened awareness of the feminine. So when the Medusa is then next portrayed as serpent-haired and any man looking at her will be turned to stone. It's men are petrified in the power of women's intelligence. Literally petrified. Right, you chop off their head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And women become become fearful of expressing their, their wisdom. Education was not for women until, you know, 150 years ago. Um, And when I was working on Medusa and her connection with Pallas Athena, I remember walking into someone's house and they had a Playboy magazine on the coffee table. And it was like, what men look for in women? And I opened it up. And the answer was, we look for a woman who's Spartan, who's, has enough brains not to act smarter than we are. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, I, so it's, yeah, you that's see that, that is the whole thing. Of and of course, yeah, and right. of course, so people fear Medusa because. Mm-hmm. Go on. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Please go on. Right. So Medusa is the source of women's instinctive primal knowing that exists at the base of their spine in their uh, root chakra. And part of the empowerment of Medusa is having the confidence to be able to speak your wisdom that women culturally have been punished and not encouraged to be able to do. Yeah, exactly. And Medusa's glare, the look, um, is keeping people away so that they won't harm you. If you activate your wisdom, then you are in your power where you have more control over your life and less fear. Yeah, no wonder men are scared silly of, of Medusa. Right. The look. Mm. <laughs> exactly. So um, 
we're coming to the end of our hour, unfortunately. But I, before we finish, a couple more questions. One of which is, Demetra, um, having started, having read your book, um, I've started to do much more work with the dark moon than I've ever done before. So I was wondering if you have any rituals that you would like to share with us um, to do with the dark moon, the kind of thing you would suggest people do, because you know more and more women are waking up. Uh, mm -hmm. to working with the moon are there any I mean what we tend to do is we tend to kind of uh, because I'm we're so into sort of new moon wishing and manifesting we kind of use the dark moon as a period to just do the final clear out of any emotional debris that we haven't managed to get rid of during the, the entirety of the waning cycle um, you know there's a, a chance to really empty out of anything that's holding us back but is there anything you like to do or you would suggest? Well, I was thinking about that. And essentially, like, that's a wonderful frame to hold the emptying out. And it's taking the timing, like, officially the dark moon phase starts three and a half days before the new moon. But there's another period of, you know, two and a half days of one day of however it is that it works out in one schedule. And there's finishing up what is still lingering. And then as part of any ritual that can be used for no matter what your spiritual path is, is preparing a space, clearing it out of clutter, cleaning it up, putting fresh sheets on your bed of, purifying yourself, of taking a bath, a shower, of going swimming, of doing that process, and then unplugging, like turn off your cell phone, turn off all the red and blue lights that are in your space that are coming from that um, media, and do whatever practice you do to go into that other world. For some, it might be listening to music or reading or meditating or praying. For some, it might even be a walk in nature where you move into that spaciousness of mind. And that that then becomes a wonderful time for any kind of divinatory work of uh, laying out a tarot spread or doing other kinds of oracles or looking at your chart or doing a horary reading for yourself um, and tuning into the power of that um, access to one's wisdom that happens when you tamper down all of the stimuli of the bright light world and you move into that sort of spaciousness of the void. And then to go into a deep sleep, pull down the blinds in your room and use that time for a deep healing and regeneration and ask for dreams, ask for visions. And with that, one can then move into the new moon and start a new round of external activity. But the more you can slow yourself down, stop the incessant activity and chattering of the mind, of move into a place of spaciousness and receptivity, of allow a vision to happen, and then go into the non-thinking space, that this is what the dark moon phase has 
optimally geared to be able to support and in understanding that one can um, flow with and align with that energy. Mm. Amazing. And Demetra, do you feel that you could uh, you could eat just as easily or with as much difficulty write the mysteries of the new moon or the mysteries of the full moon? Or do you think it's literally just the dark moon that is so replete uh, that you could write a whole book about it? Um, well, I have written what it, the psychological profiles. Dane Rudyard started the process, and I and others have continued the psychological profiles of people born during each of the other phases. And that's what I'm going to help people determine in this course and explain what that means. Um, and I'm sure for each of those, a whole book can be written. Um, that's not my book to write at this point in my life. Mm. But, no, but, but I almost mean like, the more like the, the equivalent of this book, which isn't really so much about your own natal phase. It's about the mysteries yeah, of this phase. Yeah, it is my natal phase. But because it's that realm of the unseen real, like where does the moon goddess go when she covers herself with a veil and disappears from sight? She's immersing herself in the mysteries that are not um, generally available for the everyday temporal world. Mm. Oh. Okay. We've only got a few minutes left, four minutes now, but I just want to ask you, before I ask, ask you to tell us uh, about what you're offering, just a really kind of a brief thing here is that I often look back at all the, the names of all the people who've written all the astrology books through the ages, and it was obviously mostly men. And I always say women were at home working with the moon and Venus. Do you think that's correct or have I, have I made it up? Well, to the extent that women were generally not taught to read and write um, unless they went into convents where they might have some access to education, and this was during the Middle Age, you know, the Dark Ages, the Early Middle Ages, yeah. the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, um, and so on. We don't have very many records of women writing about astrology because there weren't that many women who were taught how to write. But nevertheless, I do think that they were very much attuned to the cycles of the moon, especially the connection between the 28 days of a woman's menstrual cycle and the 28 yeah. days of the lunar cycle. And they were using that prototype for timing um, their periods of fertility um, and so on. And, ma right. and, and making spells, presumably, or making lotions and potions and tinctures. And potions and for healing. So there were stories that we know that People were um, made medicines during certain moon phases. In ancient Babylonia, they would put their medicines under the light of different stars to activate them and to make them more potent. So, and a lot of um, herbalism and knowing when to pick plants and knowing when to make medicine was very yeah. much tied to the moon. So that there was that knowledge that was being carried forth through an oral tradition. 
Um, but yeah. perhaps okay, less cool. so, definitely less so through a written tradition because of the yes. um, uh, of difficulty in accessing uh, education for women. All right. So, Demetria, tell us where we can find you on the internet, when you're going to lead your next uh, journey to India or Malta or Greece or where, what, tell us what we can do to find you. Okay. Um, you can find me in two places. One is my website, DemetraGeorge.com. The other is through Astrology University that is now sponsoring a lot of my teachings. And you can go there and put my name in the search and you'll come up with um, the uh, information about the course that starts August 14th. And we'll be asking you for your birth data with registration. And you'll get a packet with your moon phase natal, with your progressed moon phases and your progressed dark moon phase. We'll give you those dates and with about a dozen of dark goddess asteroids in your chart. And then in the course of the um, class, I'll tell you how to work with that information and personalize it. So um, that's how you can, and I also have a whole library of other recordings that you can likewise, um, you know, survey and that they're available for instant download. Um, and the Astrology University um, website will give you the greater variety of the of that material. Then, as far as uh, the next tour, I've probably now done close to twenty sacred site tours in the course of my life, and there are a few more I, in my mind, in my heart, in my imagination. I'd like to do. But I'm waiting to see what happens with COVID and how safe it is yeah. Um, yeah. for people to travel. And All right. So that's us done, Demetra. But you, I would love to stay in touch. And when you do your next tour, I will definitely be your biggest cheerleader. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Mainly Moonology podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, give us a review, and we'll be eternally grateful. We publish the podcast every Monday, 4 p.m. UK time, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, and I'm afraid to say it's silly o'clock in Australia, but it will be there when you wake up on a Tuesday morning. Have a great week. <laughs>